This is the Scripture Study Project. We are your hosts, Krista and Zach Horton, and this is our podcast where we study Scripture with you. Each episode, we help you discover new or renewed excitement for God and His Word. Invest your heart and personal life into your study and connect with others as you teach and learn together. Hey, welcome back. This is our third episode in our Book of Mormon mini-series. Today we are here to talk about the who of the Book of Mormon. Um, and this one I'm especially excited for, Zach, because this might be the one I'm most confused about. <laughs> well, there's a lot going on in the Book of Mormon. So the question is, who's going to answer all the questions? I'm glad you're here to answer my questions, because um, if you're like me, or for people that are like me or new to the Book of Mormon, um, even though I'm not even that new to it, I still... I'm always a little bit confused or wondering, like, wait, who are we talking about here? Um, who wrote this part? Who is talk? Who are we? Who is the main character yeah. here? Who is going which direction and where are they headed? And who is explaining it? So that is why I think this is going to be a fun episode. Well, it's a complex book. Um, I mean, there are. On the surface, it's the story of Lehi and his family. That's where we start. And then we end with the, you know, a thousand years later with Moroni, the last Nephite. But in between there, we've got uh, time travel, right? We move forward in the story. Then we jump forward hundreds of years. Then we jump backwards and we have these sideways flashes and and uh, back flashes. And then we have long periods of, of not a whole lot of time passing. And then we have you know, literally hundreds of years passing in a single page. And then we have Moroni throwing in the whole book of Ether and jumping back 2,000 years. And See what I'm saying? It's It can be confusing. This is all making sense to me. Like, I just had all an epiphany. All that confusing stuff makes sense to you now. No, <laughs> I just had the epiphany of, like, one of the, the type of, like, entertainment that I struggle with that I am not as big of a fan of, <laughs> that you are a fan of, is time travel. Time and travel. I'm like, oh, no wonder. I just had that light, light bulb moment of... Oh, no wonder I've always been a little more confused about that. Because if time travel starts to come up in popular culture, which we all know that it's everywhere these days, I just start to go, hey, you're, uh -oh. not a, you're not a multiverse I'm, I'm person. Out. Huh? I'm not a multiverse person. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. But I am here for it. I'm here for it in the Book of Mormon. It's not multiverse. It is just a little time travel. I can handle that. Um, but one of the helpful things that you helped create four years ago when we studied the Book of Mormon, is many of our listeners, many of you out there would remember that we talked about a study record, a kind of a study help that we created and sold last year as part of our podcast, um, or not last year, four years, four years ago. ago yeah. um, and in that, and along with that, we had a few study helps. So this particular study help is in our study record, and it is basically a structure breakdown of who who wrote in the Book of Mormon, what the books are, what the gold plates are, and who is associated with those plates, who is wrote. So it's kind of a really cool, cool breakdown. Zach and our designer, Brooke Williams, really just broke this down in a really digestible way for someone like yeah. me. Um, and I am going to be referencing this. It's one of the things I was looking forward to um, accessing. I would love to give access it to anyone else who is interested in um, checking it out. I will, I plan to post it actually on our Instagram. 
Um, and you can find us at Scripture Study Project on Instagram there. I'm going to figure out a way to do that. Or you are welcome to email you and email me, and I will send a copy to you um, so you could check it out that way. We also do have a few study records. Did you know that, Zach? We have, we have I think, one box <laughs> collecting dust. Yes, our, we have one left over with a few um, remaining. So if you're interested in seeing one of those, we can um, send that over and maybe figure out a way to get a, a study record. What's well, our email, just in case they want email. Our email is um, scripturestudyproject at gmail.com. Okay. So reach out if you're interested in any of that stuff, or you can find me on Instagram as well. But this is just a few ways that I think will be most helpful. The question that I think we kind of came to is that the breakdown that we're going to talk about today, because we could go so many different directions on who of the Book of Mormon. Today, we're going to talk about something, again, that we think is going to help you most um, as you begin and kind of set up your study. And something to listen to that will help. So the question that I'm going to ask you, Zach, is who wrote the Book of Mormon? Well, I, I, um, this is one of my favorite things to look at in the Book of Mormon. One of the reasons I love the Book of Mormon is uh, because it is such a, a rich text to read. Uh, and that gets missed both by by faithful members of the church and also by critics of the church. Um, sometimes we as faithful members of the church will look at the Book of Mormon and we reduce it to just a collection of, um, you know, favorite stories or favorite phrases or um, scripture references that we can, you know, highlight and post and, and love. And, and the Book of Mormon is good for that. I was going to say, which isn't a bad yeah, not thing. Not at all. We've not already all. talked about this. There's many ways to... Um, And in a similar vein, a lot of critics of the Book of Mormon will reduce it as just a simple proof text of, you know, Joseph Smith. Uh, They'll they'll attack the Book of Mormon as a book, but but neither side in that scenario really appreciates that the Book of Mormon is this rich text with um, not just ideas and doctrines and principles, but also themes and motifs. Uh, there are multiple authors in the Book of Mormon, and they're distinct from each other, and they have motives, they have backgrounds, they make sense. The way that they write makes sense with who they are. It's just a really rich book. In fact, I read something earlier today from a talk Elder Neil A. Maxwell gave about the Book of Mormon, where he said that uh, quite often we are like hurried tourists when we come to the Book of Mormon, and we scarcely venture beyond the entry hall. We don't Uh, really appreciate the beauty of this building that is the Book of Mormon. And so I love this question of who wrote the Book of Mormon because it's uh, not as simple as it may seem. Um, And just because we're coming off the New Testament year, the way that I've looked at this is uh, when we look at uh, the beginning of the New Testament, um, we look at the four primary gospel authors. If you go back and listen to our New Testament Book of Mormon series, we talked a lot about who is Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and how are they distinct from each other and what are their different testimonies and witnesses and perspectives on Christ? Well, the Book of Mormon actually has four gospel writers as well, four evangelists of the Book of Mormon. We have Nephi, we have Jacob, we have Mormon, and we have Moroni. Now, I know there are some other smaller writers in there. We've got Omni and Jerem, and we have some inclusions of texts where someone else is narrating a story But the primary authors, the four uh, responsible authors for the text of the book are those four. And so um, to answer your question, I want to just give a brief synopsis of each of those four authors. 
So I guess the next episode is going to need to be about um, how we're, we should be okay diving really deep, but also not diving deep. Because could these be co- somewhat contradictory as we talk about like, okay, just read through, don't worry yeah. about it, and then here we are. But is that maybe why... I think it's both. It can be great. Yeah, I think it can be multiple things to multiple people. Mm-hmm. And to go back to our uh, previous episode on how to read the Book of Mormon, I don't think you really appreciate these four different authors unless you actually read them. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can tell the difference between Nephi and Mormon if you're just looking at single verses and trying to find cool cross-references and insights. Oh, that's so true. You only sense what Nephi is writing if you read lots of Nephi and then read lots of Mormon and lots of Moroni. So in one sense, I think you can only really appreciate these four prophetic voices if you read the Book of Mormon Mm -hmm. a little bit more like maybe it was intended. Well, I love the idea of kind of thinking these as kind of the four Book of Mormon evangelists, just like we do, because I think we can say the same thing for those um, New Testament gospel writers is that you kind of begin to learn their personality and their perception of... um, of things and it, it becomes fun to read them in that way. So anyway, yeah. a side note of it's all the things, right? Like it. It's both. It's all. So first author that we meet in the Book of Mormon uh, is Nephi. Even though if you were reading the Book of Mormon as it was originally translated without the 116 pages lost, the first author you would run into is actually Mormon. Well, Technically, the first author you would run into is Moroni, who wrote the title page of the Book of Mormon. Then you would read Mormon's abridgment of First Nephi all the way through uh, the end. And then you would read uh, Nephi and Jacob, because those were the small plates that were attached at the end of the gold plates. Again, this is something in that fancy little diagram that we have that if you're interested, you can track down. But but for the sake of just readability, we're gonna I want to talk about Nephi first. So if you think just about who Nephi is, uh, Nephi um, has to leave his home. Uh, that's the story of First Nephi, and then right at the end of, uh, right at the beginning of Second Nephi, Lehi lets the family know through revelation that he knows that Jerusalem has been destroyed. So Nephi leaves his home in First Nephi, and then his home is destroyed in Second Nephi, which means he is a person without a home, without a history. And as a Jew, that's a big thing because their history and and covenant history, their attachment to God mattered a lot. And so for Nephi and his family, leaving Jerusalem not, means not just leaving home, it means leaving the temple, it means leaving the priesthood, it means leaving prophecy, it means leaving the promised land. And uh, somewhere in this new promised land, they have to create a new home, they have to create new temple, new new priesthood, new prophecy. And Nephi is the one to kind of pioneer that. And so uh, when Nephi writes, he is trying to connect his people, those that will read his words, to their covenant past, which is why Nephi quotes so much of the Old Testament. He talks about Moses's exodus and connects it to his own story. He quotes Isaiah at length because he's trying to connect his people to their past. But then he's also trying to pave a way for the future. Um, in First Nephi alone, Nephi will, will showcase two forms of prophecy that will guide the Nephites through the future. One, of course, is uh, the ancient records that they have. And so there's the story of Nephi and their family going back to get the plates. And Nephi quoting at length from those plates. 
But then you also have the vision of the tree of life um, and Nephi's own expansive vision after that, seeing the Savior and seeing kind of the history of the world. And so those two forms of prophecy, scriptural prophecy and, and modern prophecy, are going to guide the Nephites throughout the rest of their history. So, so that's Nephi. In fact, if I can just give a very Nephi kind of verse, this is uh, 1 Nephi 19, a, a verse that we really know. I'm going to start in verse 22. It came to pass that I, Nephi, did teach my brethren these things, meaning uh, the things from, from Scripture um, and from prophecy. And it came to pass that I did read many things unto them which were engraven upon the plates of brass, that they might know concerning the doings of the Lord in other lands among people of old. And I did read many things unto them which were written in the books of Moses, but that I might more fully persuade them to believe in the Lord their Redeemer, I did read unto them that which was written by the prophet Isaiah. For I did liken all scriptures unto us, that it might be for our profit and learning. Wherefore I spake unto them, saying, Hear ye the words of the prophet, who are a remnant of the house of Israel, a branch who have been broken off. Hear ye the words of the prophet, which were written unto the house of Israel, and liken them unto yourselves, that you may have hope. And so there's Nephi saying, I'm going to read you something from old so that you are connected to that ancient history, but also so you have hope of what's coming up. I've never really thought of um, Nephi in that way as this like hopeful kind of looking at the past, hoping for better and kind of preaching that to, it sounds maybe dumb to say I haven't thought of it before, but you reading those um, scriptures just made me think of the very well-known verse in second Nephi, um, where he says, where he writes, we talk of Christ, we rejoice in Christ, we preach of Christ, we prophesy of Christ, and we write according to our prophecies that our children may know to what source they may look for a remission of their sins. That he, I mean, I have always liked that about Nephi, that, um, you just get this wonderful sense of how much he appreciates and loves um, the prophets and the scripture because he uses all of them. <laughs> he uses all of Isaiah in his writings. Um, and so I like the idea of of him just kind of preaching that, but also um, the hope is kind of a fun, a yeah. fun way to look for him because that's kind of what he's filled with. Yeah, well, and, and uh, it's interesting to note that so at the beginning of Second Nephi, we have the patriarchal blessings that Lehi gives to his children with one notable exception. So we have Jacob's and we have Joseph's, we have Sam's, uh, we have uh, Laman and Lemuel's, um, and we even have Zoram's, but we don't have Nephi's, which is kind of a glaring omission. I'm sure Nephi got a patriarchal blessing from mm -hmm. Lehi. Um, one author suggests, that I've read suggests, that maybe Nephi's patriarchal blessing was uh, a, a prophecy or, or an instruction to him on how to keep his family together. And that uh, because that didn't work out, that maybe Nephi leaves it out. Now, whether that's true or not, I have no idea. But it is true that Nephi had to deal with a lot of disappointment in his life, leaving home, having his home destroyed, having his family torn apart, and having to create this new home. And so for him, looking at the prophecies of the past, but then also, as you read, looking forward to Christ, that is his new home. Uh, this new place and this new faith in Christ is what gives him hope. And so that's why Nephi uh, is so focused on the Savior and spends so much time talking about the prophecies of the coming of Christ. Um, the second author, hopefully I don't spend as much time on all of these, um, is is Jacob, Nephi's brother. 
Um, Jacob also has an interesting background. Uh, even though he's part of this family, he is not born in Jerusalem. He's born in the wilderness, in chaos, in uncertainty, um, and in a pretty violent family situation. Uh, he's he's abused, at least verbally and maybe physically to some degree, by his brothers. He's neglected. He's got hardships and trials. And so when we get to Jacob's book, even though we have a little bit of Jacob in First Nephi, when we get to Jacob's book, uh, Jacob is this author that is extremely vulnerable. Um, a, a very Jacob-ish verse is when he begins to preach to his people. This is Jacob chapter 2, verse 3. He says to them, You yourselves know that I have hitherto been diligent in the office of my calling, but I this day am weighed down with much more desire and anxiety for the welfare of your souls than I have hitherto been. Uh, Jacob's emotions are on the surface. He uses some really colorful imagery to describe what he's trying to teach his people. And Jacob um, uses a word that no one else in the Book of Mormon uses. He uses the word protector. He uses it to describe Nephi as a great protector. But in a sense, Jacob himself is also a protector. When Jacob teaches, whereas Nephi is talking about these these huge... um, eternal themes connecting past to future and prophecies of the coming of Christ, Jacob uh, focuses much more on the here and the now, on practical religion, especially as it pertains to the treatment of those that might be left out, that like him might have might be in difficult situations, might be um, outside of the attention of the norm. So Jacob talks about how we treat the poor. Uh, Jacob chastises uh, the men for how they treated their wives and how they treat their children. Um, Jacob is, uh, the, the allegory of the olive tree is all about this, this um, master of the vineyard that keeps returning to take care of these lost and forlorn and, and decaying trees. Uh, and so Jacob is the, 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 the writer of empathy, the writer of vulnerability, the writer of, of pain and resolution. He talks about atonement. He talks about reconciliation. All is a part of that kind of that story. The next uh, author, the primary author after whom the whole book is named, is Mormon himself. Um, we don't get to hear as much from Mormon about his story. He has a pretty uh, sh- shallow or, or short narrative of his own personal history, Uh, but we meet Mormon throughout the book as the narrator of the Book of Mormon. He's the one that tells the stories, and then he's also the one that gives us the and thus we sees. And so he's a prophet historian, but he's kind of a unique one. Uh, This is Mormon chapter 1, verse 2. Amaron, who was the keeper of the plates before Mormon, gives them to Mormon or or talks to Mormon at a young age, and he, he makes an interesting observation. He says to Mormon, I perceive that thou art a sober child and art quick to observe. And I think those two phrases are really um, very descriptive of Mormon. First, he's quick to observe. So Mormon sees things. He sees um, trends and patterns and themes in the stories that he tells. And so there's a reason why Mormon puts stories together. When you're reading Mosiah and Alma this year, um, it's, it's really helpful to ask, why is this story next to this story? Because Mormon does it on purpose. Um, he's quick to observe and he wants us to be able to observe. Uh, that's why we see all of those and thus we see throughout his narration. But he's also pretty sober. The stories that he tells are, are hard ones. They're stories of war. 
their stories of destruction of cities, their stories of apostasy, and they have high notes, certainly, uh, but they also have a lot of low notes. And because Mormon is at the end of his days and the end of the Nephites, uh, he has this really kind of somber message to modern readers, which is learn the lessons from our Nephite history so you don't have to suffer the same things we did. Learn about war and intrigue and pride and greed so that you can maybe avoid what we've had to go through. Well, and you kind of come to appreciate that, I think, knowing those things. I mean, I've read those verses about knowing that he is sober, but thinking of him as maybe he is more serious. Or, But I don't think anyone but him could have compiled things and noticed things the way that he did had he not had those personality traits. So I just think, again, a really cool personality um, characteristic that we can notice in, in someone that has done so much to bring all of this together for us. Yeah. It's well, cool. in fact, I read a, a, a writer today that talked about Mormon being uh, how to live discipleship during the end of days. So when things look really bad outside, how do you stay a good disciple inside? And that's, that's the story of Mormon, right? So, um, which is kind of in contrast then to the final major author of the book Mormon, which is Moroni. Even though Moroni in some ways does what his father does, he he starts, he picks up in Mormon chapter 8. So Mormon dies at the end of Mormon chapter 7, and Moroni starts writing in, Mor- in Mormon chapter 8. And he he, uh, he writes this, this phrase right at the beginning, that I alone remain to write the sad tale of the destruction of my people. So there's Moroni being a little bit like Mormon. But then uh, he, 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 um, he serves as kind of a foil to, to Mormon. Uh, Moroni uses a word uh, more than any other Book of Mormon author. He uses the word gift. Uh, Mormon is the second author, that, or the author that uses it the second most, but when Mormon uses the word gift, he talks about gifts being lost or the gifts no longer available. Moroni looks to the future. He looks to the future readers of the Book of Mormon, and he talks about the incredible gifts that they will have. So this is Moroni chapter 10. We sadly stop reading Moroni chapter 10 at the end of verse 5, as if that's the end of the chapter, but it's not. Moroni has many more exhortations, and this is just one of them. This is verse 8. He says, Again, I exhort you, my brethren, that you deny not the gifts of God, for they are many, and they come from the same God. And there are different ways that these gifts are administered, but it is in the same God who worketh all and all. And they are given by the manifestation of the Spirit of God unto men to profit them. Um, at the very beginning of the Book of Mormon, the title page, which was written by Moroni, has this wonderful, hopeful promise. After describing what the Book of Mormon is, uh, he says that this book is to show unto the remnant of the house of Israel what great things the Lord hath done for their fathers, that they may know the covenants of the Lord, that they are not cast off forever, and also to the convincing of the Jew and the Gentile that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God, manifesting himself unto all nations." That's a really optimistic and hopeful message. If you remember, I think we talked about this in one of our last episodes, Moroni's promise. The first thing he asked us to do is to read his book and remember how merciful God has been to his children from the creation of Adam, even down until the very moment that you're reading Moroni's promise. And so Moroni um, infuses us with this with this good news at the end of the book. I I heard people, and I think I've even said in the past that the Book of Mormon is a bit of a tragedy, that this Nephite people that we're following, they end up completely destroyed. But it's not because Moroni 
and his final words give so much hope and encouragement about the restored church, the organization of that church, and then these gifts that God gives and the manifestation of those gifts and power. And so the Book of Mormon really does end on a high note, thanks to Moroni. Okay, so what does all of that mean? What can we do with that now that we know these four main authors? Well, a couple of things. Um, one, there are some similarities between these authors and the authors of the New Testament. Um, but there are some really distinct differences that I think make the Book of Mormon really what it is. The book that Joseph Smith said will draw us nearer to God than any other book. Um, unlike Book of Mormon, or unlike uh, Bible authors, where we don't ever know who's writing, not even the gospel writers insert themselves, right? John calls himself the, the, the beloved apostle or the one whom Jesus loves, but he doesn't say, I'm John and I'm writing the book. Unlike that, the very first chapter of the Book of Mormon, the very first verse is, I, Nephi. And when Mormon starts his story, it's I, Mormon, and I, Moroni. These are stories of real people, and they insert themselves right into the beginning. Um, then the second thing is they're human. Um, that same title page, I just read the optimistic part, but there's a final part. The last thing the title page says is, and now if there are faults, uh, if there are faults, they are the mistakes of men. So there's Moroni right before you even read the Book of Mormon saying this is a human book written by human people. Um, and if there are faults, then don't get mad at us. The message is still true. And then the third thing that's unique about these authors is they, they are not describing physical manifestations of God. In the Old Testament, we had a pillar of fire and, and a cloud of smoke. Uh, in the New Testament, of course, we have the mortal Messiah walking and talking. In the Book of Mormon, we don't have that. We have real people's lived experiences with God but but not a God who's walking among them, talking among them, and preaching among them, with the exception, of course, of Third Nephi. And so what that means is, I think knowing these authors and coming to appreciate them as real people makes the Book of Mormon the most approachable book of Scripture. It's written by people like us who are having spiritual experiences much closer to what we are having than any other book of Scripture. And because of that, I think this book uh, has a heart and, and, a, and a life blood to it um, that just really, at least it really resonates with me. So that's a lot, but hopefully something that's helpful. At least it's been helpful to me and I'm excited to see I think it's very helpful to me too. And you did not talk too much because I was Thank asking you. you the question. So you're, you have to talk that much. Okay, so well, hope you enjoyed this episode on who of the Book of Mormon. Um, we'll be back with one more episode. 